When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to a special edition of New Books Network in which we talk about previous winners of the Coleman Prize. I am Bernardo Lasso, your host for today. Naming the honor of British business historian Donald Coleman, 1920-1995, this prize is awarded annually by the Association of Business Historians to recognize excellence in new research in Britain. It is open to PhD dissertation in business history, properly defined, either having a British subject or completed at a British university. All dissertations completed in the previous year to that of the prize are eligible. Today, we have Louis Wade, a recipient of the Coleman Prize in 2023, with his dissertation entitled Privilege at a Premium Insurance, Maritime Law and Political Economy in the Early Modern France, 1664-1710, by the University of Exeter. Luis, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Your dissertation, Luis, has been published as as, as advertised in the podcast under the title Privilege, Econ- Privilege, Economy and State in the Old Regime France, Maritime Insurance, War and the Atlantic Empire under Louis XIV, published by the Business Press in 2023, both as a paperback as an open access book. The link to this open access book is, will be provided in the show notes. Louis Wade is a Marie Slodos Kakri postdoctoral fellow at Leiden University. His doctoral thesis was the recipient of the British Commission for Maritime History's Boydell and Brewer's Prize for the best doctoral thesis in maritime history. And as we've mentioned, by the Association of Business Historians Coleman Prize for the best doctoral thesis in business history. So it is a real pleasure to have you today in the podcast, Luis. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became an academic and how you found this topic. Wow, it's a really good question. So my journey into academia, I think it's been quite a complicated one, and having listened to the other uh, podcast you've done with other common prize winners, I think that's actually, that seems to be a common theme amongst the winners, is that we all uh, come into academia from uh, for slightly unusual paths. Uh, so in my case, I grew up on the outskirts of Ipswich in the United Kingdom, um, went to fairly normal um, state comprehensive schools, and uh, but I had some really wonderful teachers who inspired a lot of history, which uh, continues to this day. As an undergraduate at Cambridge, I was blessed to have the support of some excellent academics, uh, in particular Mary Lavin and Helen Pfeiffer. Uh, Helen supervised me for my undergraduate dissertation on, on the English Levant Company and its operations in the Ottoman Empire in the early 17th century. 
and going to the archives for the first time, working with manuscript sources and developing my own arguments. That was the point for me. That was the turning point where I thought to myself, this is what I want to do for my life, for my career. Um, so, um, so yeah, so after I completed my degree, I took a gap year. I came back to Ipswich uh, and uh, worked part-time in a school as a teacher assistant and also um, started learning French because I decided that having worked on English trade with the Ottoman Empire as an undergraduate, I wanted in my master's and PhD to work on French trade with the Ottoman Empire. It seemed like a, uh, a good fit. So, um, so while I was uh, while I was working, while I was learning French, I was putting in applications for PhD positions in America and a master's position at Cambridge in the UK. Uh, I was rejected for all of the PhD positions in America, and and I did get an offer for the master's at Cambridge, but uh, there was no funding attached to that. So, in all honesty, I wouldn't have been able to have taken that up, and. So come late that year, um, I thought the academic uh, career, the academic dream was over. Uh, but fate intervened and a position was advertised uh, on a European Research Council uh, funded project run by Maria Fizarro at Exeter looking at uh, maritime law um, in early modern Eurasia. And in particular for this position, Maria, who ended up becoming my supervisor, wanted this particular PhD project to look at marine insurance and marine insurance institutions in 17th century France. And a colleague of hers, uh, Giovanni Ceccaroni, kindly uh, identified some registers in the Archive Nationale in Paris, which would be a good starting point. So when I saw this, uh, this advert, I just knew, I, I, the moment I saw it, I knew that it was the right fit for me and I had to go for it. And although I didn't have a master's, um, Maria mercifully didn't mind and uh, pushed very hard to uh, to, uh, to, 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 uh, to give me uh, that PhD position. And so, and so it was, I, I was awarded the position and the funding and um, and I moved to Exeter and started my uh, PhD there. And after about half a year, I went to the archives in Paris for the first time. That was uh, very challenging uh, because it was the first time I'd worked in a French institution, first time I'd even worked with French archival sources. So it was a real dive into the unknown. It, it was a real single spin moment. And certainly for the first hour or so, I thought to myself, what have I done? Why am I here? Why did I think I could do this? It's after cutting down and uh, spending some time with sources, I was eventually able to um, to, uh, to get to grips with it. And the rest of the PhD followed. And um, after I defended my thesis, uh, after a long time applying for many positions and being rejected for many positions, which I appreciate is very common at the moment uh, in the academic job market. Um, I was fortunate enough to first of all get a postdoctoral position at the Institute of Historical Research as uh, a fellow for the Economic History Society, and then my current position as a Murray's Oscar Curie uh, uh, postdoctoral fellow uh, at Leiden. So it's been a long meandering path, but uh, here I am. Thank you. Yes, yeah, I think it um, makes the point that there is no straight line in terms of careers for many people and just go with the flow in a way. But uh, what did winning the Coleman Prize meant for you personally or professionally, given that this this happened about uh, six months from the time that we were, we were talking? Uh, perhaps a little bit more. Um, so, what what has this experience meant? How was the the, the you know running up to the presentation and the day? And since then, how how things have evolved 
for you? It was a real privilege winning the Coleman Prize. And it came at a very, I think, a very important point in my professional career in terms of my sense of identity as a, as a historian, because my dissertation in my book touches on a, on a lot of different types of history. And certainly after the, well, going through the PhD and then after the PhD, it was hard to position myself as a particular kind of historian. I could potentially uh, suggest that I'm a social historian or a political historian or an economic historian, a business historian, uh, and so on. So thinking about the type of historian I am and the type of historian I want to be, um, applying for the Common Prize really helped me with that because at the time of applying, I wasn't sure if I would class myself as, as a business historian or whether I would be accepted as a business historian. Certainly, I'd been reading lots of articles in the Business History Review, Enterprise and Society, and other articles and uh, other uh, journals, sorry. And, and certainly, I was greatly interested and greatly admired the work in those journals. But because of because of the nature of my uh, nature of my research, I wasn't sure if, if I was quite the right fit for business history, uh, whether whether I could really sell myself as one. Um, so when I saw the advertisement for the uh, the call for the Coleman Prize, I, w- I wasn't expecting anything going in at all. I submitted my dissertation on the basis that it does no harm to try. Um, so it was really heartening. Um, as the process went on, as I would, as I made it onto the long list, then the short list, and then came to the Association of Business Historians Conference in Newcastle um, earlier in the year to present as part of the Coleman Prize session. It was, as I say, very heartening to um, feel like actually my research was a fit uh, for the business history community and that I would be welcomed. And going into a room and presenting in front of a very large group of people, uh, especially a group of people you've, uh, one hasn't necessarily engaged with before, engaging with that group for the first time is very nerve-wracking. And I wasn't sure what to expect, but I was very touched and very grateful to the audience for being so engaged with my presentation and for the really very sharp, very... Uh, a very precise questions which they asked me, which showed that they they had a very real interest in what I was saying, um, and so being announced as the Coleman Prize winner was was a real honour, and now having the opportunity to uh, to work um, work alongside members of the Association of Business Historians uh, Committee um, is uh, yeah it's allowing me to. Uh, to develop my professional ties further and develop those links with the business history community on a sure, on a much surer footing than I would have done before. If beforehand I wasn't sure if I could say that I'm a business historian, now I am confident in saying that I am a business historian alongside being historian of other things. It's it's okay to to be navigating those different identities at once. Taking uh, mo- moving things forward, uh, making a parenthesis before we go into the book, what sort of advice would you give to other colleagues we are, which are in a similar stage of development as you are, and in terms of about to finish or just finish their PhD, and then thinking about publishing this as a book or not, you know, the process of, because you've gone through a process of selecting a publisher. And then as we said, at the start of the, of the recording, you secure funding for this publication to be open source, which adds another layer of complexity that not a lot of people might be aware or uh, see the importance of that in the current climate of, of publication. So, um, some people would go for, so what made you go for the book and how did you manage this process is the question. So my advice to people finishing up their, uh, their PhD and thinking about their publication options, first and foremost is to hang on in there, 
the extent that one can, of course, with the resources which you have at hand, um, because the academic job market is especially brutal right now. It is always brutal, but especially so at the moment. And while one is considering publication options, uh, people will inevitably be applying for positions as well, postdoctoral positions, permanent positions, and they might find it takes a while for those applications to bear fruit. So, um, so first of all, I just I'd assure people in that position that they're not alone. Uh, that it is very common for these things to take time. So if so, you had so you had your dissertation to have that you want to think about your publication options. I think the first thing to do is to talk to the people around you, ask your supervisors, ask other uh, other peers, other mentors you might uh, have in your academic network, and see what they recommend. Because having engaged with your work, they will be in a good position to advise you as to how best to pitch your work, whether as potentially one or multiple articles, or as a book, or potentially a combination of the two. In my case, I felt it made sense, and my uh, and my network around me felt it made sense to publish the uh, the thesis as a book because. The chapters tie together very closely. One chapter leads into the other uh, to make you know, to make this coherent narrative. So while it would have been possible to have taken the chapters and published them individually after some work, I feel in the case of a thesis and then the book, the whole is greater than the sum its parts, and it made sense to put the effort into refining the chapters and then really honing in on the argument, rewriting uh, and redrafting the introduction and the conclusion several times to get it to the point where I was happy with it. Because inevitably, uh, at the time of submission of the thesis, it wasn't, uh, it, it remained a work in progress. And uh, so I was uh, happy to be able to have the time after the submission, after, after defense, to be able to, uh, to work on developing uh, the book um, and and making it, well, effectively making the thesis what I would have liked it to have been uh, from the start, in effect. Um, but equally for other people, the article approach might be more appropriate. And I did publish a few articles alongside the book, drawing on my doctoral thesis, uh, one in Enterprise and Society, one in the English Historical Review. Uh, which took material which I would have liked to have put in the thesis, but unfortunately I couldn't quite make it. But it was a positive in the sense that I was able to take that material and instead turn it, uh, turn, the, uh, turn this material into standalone articles, which has also been a big help to me uh, in approaching the academic uh, job market. So I think it's I think the situation is unique to everybody. Every person coming out of their PhD will have their own, will need to tailor their own approach to this. And uh, as I say, the best thing that you can do, I think, is to think about what you think is best and ask the people around you and, uh, and uh, then work from there. That is helpful. And it also opens up to move the discussion and ask you if you could give us at this point a big picture, concise overview of the book while thinking, um, you know, what, what is it that you wanted to achieve? And, um, uh, we'll, we'll pan out or, or flash out, bring out the, some of the contributions that you make in the, in the discussion, uh, after, after that. Sure. So in effect, my book is a study of the marine insurance market uh, in Paris under Louis XIV. So in particular, I study two uh, marine insurance institutions established by Louis XIV. The first being the Royal Insurance Chamber, uh, established in 1668, and then the Royal Insurance Company, established in 1686. And to the best of my knowledge, uh, this company was the first chartered company in the history of marine insurance. So my book, my book works. I would I would say on two levels. 
on the uh, the one side there is the comparative element. Uh, I wish to explore the nature of the uh, Parisian real insurance market and ask the broader question: Well, why why did Paris not emerge as a leading insurance centre in the way in which London and Amsterdam, um, the leading uh, markets in this period, and also the, the chief rivals to uh, to Paris, to France more broadly, England and the Netherlands. Why did these markets achieve the levels of success which Paris uh, did not? And uh, so uh, the discussion of the book unfolds as a result of that broader research question. And in the process, pivoting to the other side of the discussion, I also want to understand or present a new uh, present a new understanding of of old regime France and how uh, of how, and how state intervention into the economy can give us a unique perspective on the nature of absolutism uh, in this period. So, just to to um, remind our, our 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 viewers, you you are talking about seventeenth and eighteenth century France. We're talking about the regime of Louis the 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 fourteenth and the nature of politics, which you 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 bring out into the into the narrative in a very um, interesting and, and subtle way in which you are coming in and out and where those the creation of of these companies and the importance of maritime law or maritime insurance, sorry, is is sitting within within this this discussion. Um, one of the other um, things that you do is that you try to revise the, the, the discussion about Colbert and Colbertian policies, and and to what extent it was really just the, you know, the, it has uh, these these great tones of 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 of, um, of 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 these policies, and in the process, you also give us um, a very interesting insight into the actual workings of mercantilism at this at this point in time because um it's a leading question why would french french um government officials or the king be interested in developing a maritime insurance market he says a leading question i think i think it's an excellent question actually so um, so, in effect, marine insurance was one of the key markets which was driving for the development of Amsterdam as a major commercial centre. And slowly but surely, uh, London would uh, would rise as well um, to prominence on the back of, uh, or, or at least with, this, with great support from its marine insurance, insurance market. Marine insurance and commerce more broadly go very nicely hand in hand because of the way in which the marine insurance market allows merchants to spread, spread their risks. Uh, and and the, uh, the Amsterdam and London markets were able to do this on a level which other markets up to this point had not been able to do. And so it very much created this virtuous circle. And France looked on at the economic development of England to the Netherlands, of, land, of London and Amsterdam, with a great deal of envy and also frustration that France wasn't getting a slice of the action itself. As far as uh, the French were concerned, first of all, Jean-Baptiste Colbert, uh, Louis XIV's uh, eminent minister of finance, Colbert was very frustrated because as far as he was concerned, France was this incredible kingdom with this abundance of natural resources and incredible wealth. And yet somehow it was the Dutch who were ruling the seas, who had managed to establish this East India Company to create this colonial empire in the East Indies, um, with the, uh, the English doing the same to a certain extent. And so Colbert wanted to put the Dutch in their place in effect and assert what he saw as France's natural supremacy in commerce. And so... First of all, in 1664 was the establishment of uh, the French East India and West India companies. But at the same time, he was also uh, contemplating plans for a marine insurance company 
Yeah, this did not materialize, um, but the Royal Insurance Chain Bar followed in 1668. And the goal for this chain bar was to link demand for capital in the ports of France with the supply in Paris, because Paris had a wonderful uh, deep well of capital, uh, which simply needed to be tapped into. But there wasn't, there wasn't at this point in time necessarily a very developed capital market in Paris. Uh, the institutions and the institutional frameworks necessary for such a market were not yet in place. So the Royal Insurance Chamber uh, was established and succeeded for a time in allowing merchants and ship owners in the ports of France, La Rochelle, Nantes, um, so on, to seek coverage and seek finance from wealthy Parisians. And, um, and so, the, and, and as I said, it succeeded for a time. And equally with the establishment of the Royal Insurance Company in 1686, the goal was once again to get wealthy, uh, well-connected investors on board to support the development of maritime France. And again, this was with, uh, this was achieved with some success, but also with some challenges and some problems along the way. In the end, Paris was never able to achieve the sort of success which Amsterdam and London were able to do uh, to achieve. And a large part of the book is explained, well, why? Why is this the case? And as you mentioned, it is a question of, on the one hand, how institutions and financial institutions in general, financial markets in particular, are built in, at, at, you know, in the pre-industrial era, which is not something that happens easy and and it's something that we need to be reminded as, as people think that um you know they have been there for for ages and in this sense i think that you tell me if it's fair um maritime insurance is pointing into an issue that becomes more prevalent during the Industrial Revolution, and that is the fact that individuals, family-run firms, no longer are able to assume the full risk of an enterprise. That assuming you're know, buying a ship that is going to go around the world and, and coming back is it requires an amount of resources that goes beyond that, those that a single individual or a single family would have. Would that be fair? I think there is a great deal of truth in that. And historians of marine insurance in the pre-modern and the modern period, there is a lot, often a lot of emphasis on Frank Knight's distinction between risk and uncertainty, which I, I think is quite useful uh, to us as historians. Uh, this idea that Eva there is uncertainty, that which cannot be measured, that that which cannot be quantified, that which cannot a price tag cannot be put on, or uh, or risk, which is precisely the opposite, that which you can quantify and can therefore put a monetary value on. In the early modern period, a big a big issue, a big restriction on the development on the development of maritime commerce is uncertainty. Uh, is just not knowing what's going to happen and the inability to absorb capital shocks when a ship is captured, when a ship sinks. These are things which can bring down an enterprise and with it, entire chains of capital uh, or, or, or of credit, uh, indeed. And what marine insurance allowed people to do, allowed merchants, allowed ship owners to do, was to put a price on that risk and to shift that risk and to share it uh, amongst the broader community so that such capital shocks weren't normally so problematic. But with the Industrial Revolution, of course, there's a great deal of complication that arises in, in economic affairs, uh, increasingly sophisticated um, economic operations. And one just has to look today. Insurance might not be 
especially good fun or especially exciting to study, but it is everywhere. And it is the bedrock of the economy today. And as uh, the effects of climate change ripple through the economy, and as particular risks potentially are converted back into states of uncertainty, as we uh, as insurers look at particular situations and say we can't put a price on this or the price of this uh, if we can put a price on this price is so high that nobody would be willing to pay for it it could potentially become a death by a thousand cuts as businesses find that all of these risks and uncertainties which they were able to trade at a price up to now suddenly they have to bear for themselves and those capital shocks, which early modern people, uh, early modern merchants and ship owners had to deal with on a regular basis, suddenly that potentially becomes the norm again. And that would be an incredible shock to the system, to the economic system and to our understanding, I think, of the world as we know it today. And something that you give some you know some 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 bit of space and i leave you to use the, the the correct terminology is whether the actions of the sovereign are going to be credible and the importance of whether this the the, the credibility of this action has in the creation of institutions and and you revisit this idea in the creation of of these two market. Would, would you kindly elaborate a little bit on, on this? Certainly. So I was especially drawn to the argument of credible commitment uh, following uh, the publication of Ron Harris's book, Going the Distance, uh, uh, a few years back uh, with Princeton University Press. So Harris's argument, uh, which applies to the English and the Dutch East India companies, is that what the England uh, is, is that what England and the Netherlands were able to offer uh, to merchants, which other countries, including France, could not, was this credible commitment to not expropriate the resources of their subjects. In this case, merchants. To put it another way, those who uh, who invested in the English and the Dutch East India companies were, uh, in the Harris's argument, able to do so confident that the money they invested was not going to be seized by uh, seized by the sovereign and used for other purposes. And for Harris, it's this distinction that explains why the English and Dutch East India companies arise so early in 1600 and 1602, uh, so long before other countries established their own East India companies, and also why they achieved uh, such a great deal of success where other companies, including uh, the French East India Company, uh, established by Colbert, did not. I'm not especially convinced by this argument. I, I, I find uh, Harris's book fascinating, and there's a great deal I like about it. But this particular aspect of his argument, I find problematic, not least because credible commitment, I think, is not something which we see in England or the Netherlands, at least not on the level which he suggests until far later uh, in the day. And on the French side, Credible commitments. I mean, theoretically, on paper, it was a problem. Uh, theoretically, Louis XIV was an absolute monarch whose power was unchecked by uh, by other institutions. But in reality, uh, historians of France have been pushing back strongly against this perspective for many decades now. Um, the consensus uh, up until recent years has been one of absolutism and social collaboration, or in effect. That Louis the Fourteenth had to work with social elites to get done what he wanted to get done. He could not simply sit in Versailles and say, "This is what I want, and you will do it." It was far more complicated than this. And so, my book, in revisiting the argument on credible commitment, tries to reinterpret um, the chartered companies, including the French Sidia Company, but also the Royal Insurance Company as I mentioned before, and tries to rethink these companies as breaches of absolutism, as uh, as ways for the state to get around the problem of credible commitment, 
and still achieve what it wanted to achieve. In effect, investors knew going in that there was a very good chance that their investment would be expropriated in one way or another, but they still invested because of the social, legal, um, economic privileges often uh, on offer to those who invested. So if we take a step back and, and not look at the companies purely as, uh, as profit-driven endeavors, if we look at them as products of this broader culture of privilege, as broader uh, creatures of absolutism, we get a very different picture, I, I suggest, of of these uh, of these companies and how they function and why the fact that they didn't necessarily make profits isn't necessarily a sign of failure. Actually, in the case of the broad insurance company, it's it as far as I uh, as I can tell, uh, based on the records which are still available to us, it, it looks like it lost all this money. But in fact, it was still regarded by ministers as successful because it was serving uh, the function for which it was established. That is, it was designed, it was established with the express goal of protecting French commerce at sea. And in that sense, it had succeeded. And that's one of the things that I, that I very much like from, from your discussion without making this uh, a whole discussion of credible commitment and north and, and institutions but certainly a little bit of a, a small criticism in this overemphasis into property rights as the drivers of long-term institutions and long-term development which is probably at the heart of colleagues like uh, like a who's who's been very successful with their books but you know there there's been a um, some some discussion on on that but let let let's move on you you use a wealth of archives and you've already told us that it was the first time that you went to to work with the french archives so what other sources of material were you bringing together to tell this very rich story so the base for my research were the institutional registers for the chamber and the company um there is such a dearth of surviving evidence on marine insurance, even in the big markets of Amsterdam and London. So the registers which are in Paris for these institutions is quite extraordinary. And I was very lucky to be able to work with them and uh, get so much out of them, especially since these registers are of such a diversity. There are the quantitative uh, registers. Um, so in effect, the policy registers themselves listing the individual policies one after another, uh, the amount uh, underwritten, um, the voyages being insured, what was being insured, and who was doing the underwriting. And this allowed me to present a big macro picture of the two institutions and track their underwriting over time. Uh, and in the case of the Chamber as well, the track record of individual underwriters. Um, but uh, also you have the more, what I would say, are more qualitative registers as well. Um, in particular, arbitration uh, registers, um, which go into a lot of depth as uh, as to how conflicts emerged and how these were resolved. And I was able to pair the arbitration registers with the court records of the Parisian Admiralty Court to present a slightly different picture from the one which institutional economics often presents for uh, conflict resolution. That is. Um, in the case of 17th century Paris and for, for marine insurance, it wasn't simply a case of uh, of choosing arbitration uh, over the court system because it was cheaper and uh, and so on. In fact, the two went hand in hand. Arbitration and uh, litigation were mutually coherent. Uh, they were the mutually coherent strategies, and often uh, arbitration was used as a first step, which would then be escalated to to litigation if necessary, or even vice versa. And so um, this is this is, uh, this is a part of my analysis uh, at the end of the book, which um, which I really do try to bring out. Otherwise, uh, another large uh, part of my source base are the papers themselves, um, in particular the letters of the Sec Secretary of State of Maritime Affairs. Uh, these letters 
which were being written uh, from the Secretariat, uh, both in, both in terms of letters to um, individuals throughout France, throughout uh, and throughout the world, seeking information, which was useful for marine insurance purposes, um, but also memoirs discussing uh, marine insurance. These papers really allowed me to dig to the heart of what we were discussing earlier about the state's interest in marine insurance. It was here that we really see why the state was interested and the lengths uh, it went to to support these institutions. Because, of course, Paris is not a natural place uh, to establish a marine insurance market. It, uh, these institutions needed help and they got a great deal of this support through, uh, through the state uh, and its information networks. And these state papers uh, allowed me to track these information networks and how they were used in service to the needs of marine insurance. You've told us a little bit about what, what, what is innovative, what is new in your work, and what have you questioned. You've told us a little bit about the um, sources that you've used. Well, what do you think is most distinctive, innovative, or borrowed from other disciplines or methodologies in your work? What's most distinctive? Goodness, uh, <laughs> that's a very good question. I think potentially, I think I think the most distinctive element was pointed out to me actually in my viva um, uh, for, for my thesis uh, by uh, by my uh, external examiner, uh, I know Molly, uh, um He pointed out to me um, just how much my methodology and my way of approaching uh, the topic was shaped uh, was being shaped by Bradell uh, and uh, and his work and. While I've always been a big fan of Bradell and his, and his and I've always uh, brought his work uh, into my own, I hadn't quite realised up until that moment just how important his way of understanding the world was to me as a, as an historian. And so that when I was revising the book, that was one of the main things I was doing was bringing this distinctive Bradellian perspective uh, into the core structure of the book um, so that I could write this histoire totale, this total history, as Brunel calls it, which allowed me to uh, to bring together these social, uh, political, economic, legal elements all together in a coherent narrative. So that looking at these underwriting portfolios uh, of these institutions alongside legal practices, litigation, alongside even uh, religious practices and uh, religious solidarity, um, these elements all make sense because of the framework uh, which I adopt thanks uh, to Pradal. And I think that is, I think that's probably what's the most distinctive thing uh, about the book uh, is, is that structure and the way in which it allows, I think anybody with an interest in modern history and in all of these different disciplines they will, I hope, find something in the book which will be at least of some interest to them. Great. And what would be the interest of business people today from this research? You've talked a little bit, a little bit about um, climate change. You've talked about insurance, but what would you expect business people to to be drawn into reading your your book? So, for business historians, I think it's a I think the book is uh, what I hope will be a good reminder of the importance of historical context in the nature of institutional development. Uh, it's very easy to apply and uh, to bring anachronistic baggage with us when trying to approach questions about the past. And I did this myself uh, in approaching in approaching the thesis and the book. My original question was to. Uh, or my, my original desire was to understand, well, why did the Parisian insurance institutions fail where those of Amsterdam and Paris uh, and London, sorry, did not. And actually that was a very, uh, in posing the question in those, in those terms, I was bringing a lot of baggage with me. I was looking at it from a very modern perspective, because as I was saying before, these institutions were not failures, it, uh, at least not in a way uh, which uh, 
they were not failures in, so, in a way which would be so easy to describe as failures. Um, from a modern perspective of profit and profit maximization, we could say that these, are, uh, these institutions were failures, but in fact, they were doing a lot more besides trying to make profits. Um, so, so as I say, historical context, and uh, uh, I think that's one side which business historians will take. Also, importance of the state in economic development. Uh, I appreciate that that will be very unpopular with a lot of people who uh, who believe in the power of the individual and in individual enterprise. I don't wish to suggest that that is um, that, that that is incorrect or that that is um, um, or that, that those perspectives should not be pursued. But I do stress the importance of the state in early modern economic development. And I think coming back to the point you were saying before about climate change, the state is going to be once again a pivotal actor in economic development as we make that transition um, away from fossil fuels towards green technology. This is not something which the private sector alone, I would suggest, is able to do, as I say, by itself. It will need support. And there are, I think, real echoes uh, in, uh, across across the ages, um, These um, this common thread of the early modern period to the modern period uh, in the role of the states uh, in, uh, in doing this, and also in responding to geopolitical tensions and competition as well. In the 17th century, it was uh, France and England trying to push back against Dutch dominance in commerce and shipping. Today, it is the EU and the United States trying to uh, push back against Chinese dominance in the procurement, uh, the refining and the utilization of the elements needed for the green transition. Um, the state whether we like it or not, matters. Uh, it mattered then and it will matter again to us now. And that ties very nicely to one of our previous podcasts on the varieties of capitalism and, and the role of the state and interaction between business and, and the state, which I will add to the show notes uh, as well. A final question, if, you, if, if, uh, if I may, which is, why are you working on now? What is your next big project? So, uh, and this is, I think, uh, we, we come full circle in fact. So, uh, I was mentioning at the start of uh, the podcast that I uh, was hoping originally to uh, work on, uh, so my uh, master's and PhD on French trade with the Ottoman Empire. Uh, fate I intervened to bring me to real insurance, but now I'm finally returning to uh, to this original interest in. Uh, France and the Ottoman Empire. Uh, so in particular, I'm looking at France's trade in woolen cloth with the uh, with the Ottoman Empire. Um, and this builds very nicely actually on my doctoral research, uh, because the narrative uh, which historians have presented to date uh, comes in two parts, for the most part. Um, firstly, the analysis tends to centre on the interventions of Colbert. Um, who was everywhere uh, in the French economy uh, in the 1660s and 70s, uh, up until his death in 1683. Colbert intervened uh, in um, in this industry uh, to try and promote French trade with the Ottoman Empire. And then in the first half of the 18th century was the golden age of, the, uh, of this industry and this trade with the Ottoman Empire. It was France's fastest growing industry. And a real staple of uh, the Mediterranean French economy. But how we get from Colbert's interventions to this golden age, I argue, actually hasn't been uh, hasn't really been explored. Colbert died in 1683, but the factories, uh, the cloth factories he was supporting, were on the verge of bankruptcy, and trade with the Ottoman Empire remained fairly weak. Um, the English remained the dominant players. And yet, within 17 years, by the turn of the 18th century, France was establishing itself as a major player alongside the English, and within a few decades would become the dominant player. So why? What happens in this intervening period to explain this rapid change of fortune? In exploring that, I, I, I seek to shift the perspective by looking 
uh, in part, not only on uh, the Mediterranean perspective, that is France's trade with the Ottoman Empire, but also uh, the trade of this cloth um, in Asia more broadly, in particular in India, in Siam, uh, through the French East India Company. Um, the investment of the French East India Company in this industry was very significant. And I see this as the forgotten part of the story. This investment helped to underpin the development of the industry through this pivotal turning point in the industry's history. And so looking at uh, the industry from this Asian perspective rather than strictly Ottoman perspective, uh, I, I seek to argue, um, fills this gap and helps us to understand uh, why the, uh, the industry developed as it did. The project is at an early stage and I am um, having great fun at the moment working through some archival uh, material and I look forward to being back in the archives in the coming months to uh, continue the project further. And we look forward to having you back in New Books Network when, when you have the publication out because I'm sure it's going to make another riveting read. So, Louis Wade, thank you very much for being with us today, recipient of the Coleman Prize in 2023, and with the dissertation that is published now as Privileged Economy and State in Old Regime France, Maritime Insurance, War, and Atlantic Empire under Louis XIV by the Boydell Press, and as a paperback and open access book, the link to the open access book will be in the show notes. This was Bernardo Batislaso. Thank you for being with us. If you are a subscriber, please give us a comment or rank us. And if this is the first time that you listen to us, then do consider becoming a subscriber to New Books Network. Luis Wade, again, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. And thank you for to our listeners.